Hi, I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben with the Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. In today's episode, we speak with Karina Weedman, a London-based actor and writer from Kazakhstan who has lived internationally. Karina spoke with us about the underground theater scene in Belarus, the chain of responsibility in casting, and how it might be more inclusive of international actors, and her debut play, The Anarchist, winner of the inaugural Woven Voices Prize. Hi, Karina. Thank you so Hi. much for joining us today. Thank you, Nadia. Yes, I'm looking forward to talking to you today. So, Karina, just to talk to you a little bit about your background and how you are where you are today. So you were born in Kazakhstan, lived in Belarus, Austria, and you now live in the UK. Could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how it informed who you are today? Yes, thank you. Yes, I was born in the northeast of Kazakhstan in a small town called Ekibastuz, and it's a very industrial town. It's also the biggest open cast coal field and there are two coal kind of fired power plants called Grass 1 and Grass 2. And Grass 2 has the tallest chimney in the world. And despite the fact that the town is so small and the population is just, I think, over 100,000 people, yeah. it's a very kind of tall chimney, stands as a tower <laughs> next to my town. There is also a large coal mine company called Vastochny. Mm-hmm. And majority of people work there, including my grandmother who worked there, my grandfather, my mom before her college also worked there for a year. And it's it seems like everyone is connected to this coal company. Yeah. But the most interesting thing about my town is and the most terrifying is the fact that it was the location of a major gulag labor camp of the Soviet Union. Right. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who you might know, he was an outspoken critic of communism and the writer of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and he served in this camp. Mm-hmm. So I was raised, surrounded by stories about migration, deportation, war, but also a lot of culture and mm-hmm. sense of tradition and family. And I think that sort of influenced me a lot. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a state with a lot of people with different nationalities and beliefs and backgrounds who were deported from Korea, Germany, like my great-grandparents, and Russia, all parts of the Soviet Union, but also Central Asia, and so on and so on. But it kind of, the variety of our cultures and differences only contributed to this I think the solidarity and we managed to be very good classmates, trustworthy neighbors, mm. close friends, some are lifelong friends. And mm. I think my childhood certainly shaped who I am today. I still carry this immense amount of tradition, faith in people and cultures and also responsibility for my people. I think what shocks me when I go into the room and people don't know about the existence of Kazakhstan and they only mm. mention Borat. <laughs> when I say Kazakhstan is much more than that, mm. uh, much more than that. And yeah. Yeah, such a strong sense of community, it seems, that you grew up around, which is, I feel, getting lost in our modern Western world. And so what took you then to Belarus, Austria, and 
the UK ultimately? So my my mother, she was raised by a Jewish grandmother and she was very, very curious about going to Germany to retain her citizenship as on her father's side, everyone was deported mm. because they were Germans. But she had to do a bunch of tests to retain that citizenship and kind of prove her status. And it took her 12 years. And during that process, we lived in Russia, in Moscow, we lived in Belarus. We kind of tried to move west. Mm-hmm but also explore different parts because obviously the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. I was born in 1995 and there was a lot of curiosity about going to the West and see how people mm-hmm. live and what they're accustomed to. And it's, 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 it was extraordinary that that was possible after such a long period of Cold War. And so, yes, we went to Belarus. We lived there. I lived there. My little sister was born when I was 12. So she spent some of her childhood there. Then we went to Germany. And then my mom found out about her family, that they were in Vienna. And she decided to move to Vienna. And they still live in between Belarus and Vienna, Minsk and Vienna. So I spent not a huge amount of time because I turned 18 and I had to go to university. So they went to live in Austria and I was only visiting them while studying here. And did the arts hold an important place in your family growing up? I was raised by two parents and two grandparents who were not connected to art at all, and <laughs> but who always had a lot of curiosity and appreciation for any expression of art. Since I was very small, they encouraged me to read poems out loud on any occasion, whether it was a national holiday or a birthday party. I could pull out of my sleeve any poem, whether it was Akhmatova or Brodsky or any at the time, of course, Russian poets. But I I admired them a lot. And I think that kind of was a very big part of me growing up that I knew I was really, really curious about poetry, literature, any sort of form of artistic expression through words. Mm. And in my hometown, we never had theater. So we only had a small cinema called, as you might have guessed, Kazakhstan. (laughs) (laughs) And a few concert halls, a few, I mean, one large concert hall and two very small ones that belong to schools. But that encouraged young people to get together, come up with something and put it out there. No one ever thought of whether it has to be in a presentable shape because there was no professional guidance on how to put on a play or Mm. have a band or make a film. It was all about experimenting. And in a way, it was very liberating for me because I felt if I had a group of people, we could collaborate. If I had an idea, I could find a group of people and we can do something with it. And I came to see it for the first time. I went to see a play. I was already 15. And it was in Minsk, actually. Yeah. Do you remember what it was? Yes. It was about something about marriage. It was a comedy. It was, I think it was a very old Soviet, old Russian, I think, Soviet play mm-hmm. about marriage. I wouldn't be able to precisely name it. And it had a very important actor coming from Moscow to be in it. Mm-hmm. I think it was an extraordinary thing because I've never seen people performing live. And that kind of only encouraged me to go and see more plays. And I discovered Belarus Free Theatre in Minsk. 
afterwards because I knew that there was an underground theater that was very different. And as mm. a teenager, it was just something that I cherished so much an opportunity to go and watch political plays underground after school. And I, that certainly help also helped me to, 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 to kind of, I still have those narratives and themes in my own work now. Yes. Is that literally underground? <laughs> they have different locations every time because they are not accepted. So they're not literally underground, but they are in these abandoned houses that are kind of residential housing, like dachas, we call them. <laughs> and you go there, there is a kind of, let's say, checkpoint Charlie, <laughs> where you go, you stand there, you pretend like you are just a passerby, but then you form a group and one of the actors comes and he gives you a code word that you respond to and then he leads you into a place and the place is always different. So it is a very kind of unique experience of watching theatre that I've never experienced before. And I remember I was underage. I was 17 when I went to watch one of the shows and two police officers came in and they asked how old I was at the time. And I said that I was 17 and they asked me to leave. They said to me, I was not allowed to watch. Wow. <laughs> and also this kind of very scary experience in a way, because as a teenager, as a young woman at the time, I, yeah, it was considered to be almost a crime to watch something that's forbidden. And I can only imagine mm -hmm. how my parents lived during the Soviet Union, especially my grandmother, where communism was so strong and there was a lot of censorship. And mm -hmm. not only they didn't have access, but Anything that was passed on to them, any book had to be hidden, anything. So it's it's very, very scary, that sort of regime. Mm. Yes, of course. They stopped the performance, they inspected the room, and they noticed me amongst the audience, and they asked me to come and show my passport. And I said, I have no passport. And they asked me, how old was I? And I didn't lie. I said, I'm 17. They asked me at what school I went, and I went at the time to Gymnasium 11. And I expected actually my directed school to call me in. I think she received the call, but she taught me French after classes. So she had a sweet spot for me and she, <laughs> I didn't get any sort of punishment, but I knew that, that was a warning. Yeah. Wow. Did the performance resume after you left or did they just shut it down? I think they shut it down for the day for some time, but I think that there was, there was a certainly a long sort of, let's call an intermission, disruption. <laughs> we yeah. had to all stand outside and negotiate. I, yeah, because actors, they really stood up for me and they insisted for me to continue watching because there was, apart from, I think, maybe a few swear words, there was nothing yeah. controversial or dangerous yeah. for a 17-year-old to witness. So, yeah. It must have been hugely inspirational did it play a part in your decision to pursue acting and writing as a career yes yes absolutely I think that watching content any sort of content in Belarus because I also went to an evening film school and I was encouraged by teachers to pursue acting professionally and I took it very seriously and with the help of my mom we managed to find a suitable so, of course, I plan to apply to Germany, Moscow and London. Mm -hmm. And the first course that we applied for was a foundation course in Cambridge. It was called CSVPA. And I applied for it. And while I was preparing for my 
life exams because I would have had to take a train to Moscow in the summer to audition. I was already accepted at Cambridge. So I was really, really excited about that. And I accepted it with no doubt. And during my first year at Cambridge, I already applied to Guildhall and for an acting degree. So that's kind of how that initiative became a thing. And yeah. So you kind of, it was vocational sort of from very young. You knew that acting was it and you took the steps you needed to make it happen. Yes, I feel many people come to acting and any sort of creative path with a lot of resistance from people next to them. Some come when they were raised in a scenario where they were always part of this creative environment. But I come from, I was really encouraged by my teachers and my family to pursue it. My mother really believed in the idea that if you want to pursue art, you should. But of course, it comes at a great, <laughs> at a great cost at the end, because compared to many other mm. professions, you have to prove yourself to the world. And it's also extremely difficult to enter the industry as a young person. So that's something we haven't, we didn't foresee. Yeah. And we went there blindly. Yeah. I say we because I feel that that support that I was surrounded by was actually a rare thing. And mm. I'm really, really pleased. And I feel like it's, yeah, it was like Guildhall. I remember it was like winning a lottery. They gave me a scholarship for my BA in acting. And I've never been that lucky since. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a hugely challenging industry, but how wonderful that you were so encouraged to pursue it and that you got into Guildhall, which this is such a competitive school. In 2016, I believe you won the Lillian Bayless Award. Is that right? Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I remember that. Yes, in 2016, I've performed a monologue, I remember, and then I was nominated for the award and I was given the award and Kenny's Brana presented the award at Old Vic and I had to spell out my name because I have a Russian name originally and it's Nepomnyshaya and poor Kenny's Brunner. <laughs> I had to write it in phonetics for him to to say it out loud in front of everyone but it was I would say it was a very sort of not a very competitive scenario I think I was chosen by Guildhall already and they decided to choose me and I was asked to come and was given the award. So it required some acting for me, but there were many other competitions where there were people competing with other schools and stuff where you had to come at the West End and read monologues out loud. And that was very, very scary because you knew that there were other people and stuff. The Lillian Bailey's award wasn't like that. So it's an award and that is impressive in and of itself. <laughs> you also trained as a writer doing an MFA in writing for stage and broadcast media at Central, graduating in 2018. So obviously we talked about what brought you to the UK, but then what made you pursue writing as well as acting? And writing, I think it might sound very, very odd and wrong. But I wasn't mature enough to, to me, what it felt to have that perspective as a writer. I was a mm -hmm. young woman only learning what it is to be a character, at least, or to play people of my age or older, because in drama school, you explore people 
very different characters, different age, and you have that freedom. But I remember watching Wynne Jones. He was the director of acting at the Guildhall. He encouraged me as well a lot to be very brave with my acting choices. And he taught us how to work with text. And the amount of time we spent on discussing the precision and what the text is, I've never experienced in any high school or anywhere before. I read literature, I read novels. I kind of did write essays, but I never knew the importance of text. Mm -hmm. And I think only through acting training, I realized that I would like to pursue writing as a career. And I applied to Royal Central. I was on the waiting list for a year and I ended in 2018. And by that time, I kind of already knew a little bit who I was and what I wanted to say and who I was representing. And I think as a writer, you, you put yourself out there as much as as an actor, you put yourself out there. You, it's your voice and it's all the responsibility for the words. In, mm. in a way, it's a job that carries a lot of things that sometimes can be dismissed and the amount of research I had to do. And yeah, but the course itself was great. I think I'm appreciating it more each year, more and more. <laughs> are you still on it or are you saying in sort of hindsight? Yes. Do you appreciate more what it was? Exactly what it was, mm -hmm. because when you are a student and you are in the training, you are worn out and you only complain. You really appreciate yeah. anything uh, <laughs> yeah. because people make you work hard. They make you question yourself and that's, mm -hmm. not, that's uncomfortable. And what happened was that we went into the lockdown and it was my final year and I did an MFA course, which lasted for two years and I had to write and I had to write a lot. And the first thing I've done, and everyone in my year, we started complaining about the fact that we were in lockdown and we couldn't go to uni to do things. Mm -hmm. But it was the best thing that happened to me as a writer <laughs> because the only thing I had to do was to write. I had no distractions. And I started appreciating the amount of work that we were given, the mentors that we had. I was, in a way, having these one-on-one -on -one sessions with them and it was just sort of almost therapeutic experience mm. professionally. And now I look back and every time I watch a film, I can break it out in acts. I know when the incident happens, things that I never knew before as an actor. And it's, it's mm. a skill that you have and you're almost like an engineer of your craft. And it's wonderful. So you touched a little bit on what you loved about your training, both as an actor and as a writer. Can you expand maybe a little bit more about the sort of highs and lows mm. of it all? And also, were there other international students in your year, both when you were training as an actor and as a writer? That's a good question. Thank you. Yes, I'll start with Guildhall because my training at Guildhall was absolutely magical. We were literally creating magic. One of the first things we were introduced to was called a magic space where you as an actor had to use your skills to create the narrative in an empty square. Mm. And the training taught us many things. But I think, I think all three years was like the highest, I would say two and a half until the industry component kicked in. And we kind of realized that we had to be liked yeah. by some industry people <laughs> and yeah. otherwise we wouldn't be able to get jobs. And that was something that, that when the magic started fading away and we had to be very, very professional in terms of how we pitch ourselves and how we 
present ourselves and find our niche. And these things all of a sudden stopped being creative and required a lot of Mm -hmm. attention. But I feel like we were very young and we were raised and bred in this magic space. And all of a sudden we were quite disappointed by the fact how different Mm -hmm. the real world was. And I think that slowly the sort of collaboration and magic of theater making and live audience faded. And I found myself at the reception desk in one of the hedge funds in Mayfair. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was definitely the lowest points because how can you as an actor one day performing Chekhov, Zielena, Mankovania in front of an audience, thinking that you can change their lives and (laughs) five months later you are a receptionist. And it's, it's not... I was really proud of my work as a waiter, as a receptionist. I worked in a photography studio. I loved those jobs because I loved the people around me. They seemed very, most of them were international. Most of them had a very similar background to me. Some of them were artists, but it was not what I was expecting for myself at the time. Yeah. 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 That definitely resonates. And so were there other international students when you were training? Thank you. Yes. They were international students. My year was exceptionally talented. It's true. Many of my classmates now are working nonstop on West End and TV. Mm-hmm. But it's true that most of them were locals, native yeah. speakers who had and have better chances than any migrant actor to land a role. Mm-hmm. And the year above me was quite international and they were older. Right. And I know that many people left London, especially during the pandemic at post-Brexit were very strong actors though and it still to me is a disappointment when I was working on the anarchist I had access to spotlight for the first time not as an actor but obviously as a member of theater and I looked up those names to invite them to audition and I couldn't find them Mm. and that was terrifying because I realized these people they cannot sustain because there is no work for them it comes down to a simple truth of being employed Exactly. And was there a lot of emphasis when you were training on getting your accent to be a certain way? And did your teachers make you aware that that would be, if anything, your passport into employment? Yes, yes. I experienced a lot of frustration for not being listened to, not being taken seriously and hating my accent. Mm. Mm. I wanted to get rid of it. I was told to get rid of it. In drama school, they told me to be very, very attentive. And all my acting notes, which were supposed to be about acting, turned into accent notes. And Mm -hmm. they warned me about unemployment. Speaking in RP was a must. Sometimes it was more important than good acting. And it took me a long time to accept my mother sound. And to accept myself because in a way it's who I am and depriving myself of an opportunity to speak in a way I talk to you now it means to be somebody else and I don't think that a person of any profession must be forced to do that. British actors can keep their own accents and put on an accent for a part yet we are expected to morph into being British, essentially. Yes. The go-to is RP, of course. But yeah, 
it kind of defeats the purpose of acting, I feel. <laughs> yes, I agree. And talking about British actors, it's true. I also witnessed many of my classmates who had regional accents, mm-hmm. beautiful regional accents, yes. Scottish accent, being asked to speak differently. And yeah. they were fantastic in doing that. And they were complimented a lot for doing that. Mm. But I saw that charisma and beauty of their own you know how unique they were and how much they had to adjust and I think it's great that they could do it as a skill yes but I don't think it should be asked from them to arrive into audition room speaking that way it should be a skill like sword fighting rather than you need to become exactly yeah so you told us already a little bit about the post-school world and you know, entering the industry. If you could expand a little bit about that, for example, did you find representation when you graduated and how did you cope with what was very unexpected? So I had representation after. It happened to be that I kind of expected for agents to express their interest after my first debut, which was playing Yelena in August, which is a Welsh take on Uncle Vanya, which was a beautiful play directed by Wynne Jones, our director at Guildhall. And it was just a fantastic experience. And of course, since I was given the leading role, and that was kind of the major part I had during the year, I believed that that would be the point of interest for people. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't. And only being properly in conversations by the end of the year. And some of those agents didn't even see my work. And I then invited the two agents that were interested to come to watch our Shakespeare showcase mm-hmm. where I played Miranda. And I remember that it was almost the end of the training and that when I was yeah, offered a place as a client in this agency and I was given, I think I had only two auditions and I landed another role, which was for the BBC radio drama, mm-hmm. but that wasn't through an agent, that was through... They were looking for a Russian actor, mm-hmm. Russian actress to play Vladimir Kamarov's wife. And mm-hmm. it was called The Death of a Cosmonaut, written by James Fritz, who was a former student at Central. Right. And he told me about the course. Mm-hmm. And that's why I applied for writing. So that was everything was in a way connected. And when I was given the role as an actor, the second role that year, for Demons, the play, I was at the same time contacted by the Russian theater, and it's a very well-known theater in Moscow, mm-hmm. to play potentially the lead role in Three Comrades by Remark. And it was a really tough choice because for a young Russian-speaking actress to be in Three Comrades <laughs> in Sovremenik is like the top. And yeah. For a long time, I decided not to go there straight away. And by the time when I went, they already were considering somebody else. And also I knew deep down that I wasn't ready to give up on my chances here in London. And Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of was my decision. Yeah. And then, to be honest with you, after that play of West End Demons that I've done, I haven't had a lot of opportunities. And also I went into being a student again. Yeah. Have you found that after graduating, the industry and your agents, have they kind of embraced your international identity? Or do you find that they still don't quite know how to approach you as an actor? I feel that 
agents work in a very, very different way to what, as an actor, you expect them to do. Because in a way, you wish for them to see your talent, but they don't want you to also be lost in the books because they know that you might just not be employed. And before, I used to think that, oh, they're very, very kind of cruel people that don't want to give me opportunities. And if they only took me <laughs> and worked with me, I would be granted these opportunities and people will see me. But now I'm realizing more and more that it's about this chain of responsibilities, the casting directors, the casting directors respond to directors, directors respond to producers. And who really wants to see, you know, these people with very, very different take on things, this otherness. And to me, it felt like agents was a bridge between me and my career. But now I feel the agent that I have now, it's Eamon Bedford. I can feel that he is fighting for me and he does his best. But there is certainly a lot, lot of responsibility on actual directors and producers at what content and how they describe and who they are looking for and what breakdowns are out there. Because it's very difficult to, I imagine, for agents even to pitch somebody who's out of the casting bracket because how many times you can really do it if it's not in the description. However, I think it's very important for casting directors to invite people outside of those casting brackets, outside of those descriptions of those roles and allow actors to be seen and encourage those agents to submit their clients that maybe look or sound differently because otherwise there won't be ever any change ever. So it's this chain of responsibilities again and how each one of those roles have to be very aware of who they take, who they see. And Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I when I graduated, I had an agent interest that this person literally told me, you know, that you're very talented, but there is no work for you here. There's not going to be enough work for you here. Mm. And that was just, it was very difficult to hear, but it, it was the reality. And she just mm. didn't have the capacity to sort of fight in a way, fight my sort of corner. Of course. As you say, she's up against it as much as we are. Yes, There's only yes. so much they can do. Yeah, I agree because the more I grow up and the more I'm becoming more of a sort of, I work in the corporate world now for a few years. I work at the Financial Times part-time and there are responsibilities and there are boundaries. And I can only imagine that for the people in the industry, there are also a lot of things and it takes a lot of courage for one person to push the boundaries at times and push their client or invite an actor as a casting director or make a bold choice as a director to take someone on board. Unfortunately, it's still not a norm to represent international people, European people, people that come from other parts of the world. It's not a norm, so it takes a lot of courage and persuasion. It does, yeah. So... Your play, The Anarchist, won our inaugural Woven Voices Prize for Playwriting in association with the German Street Theatre. Can you tell us a little bit about your play? Yes, it's a political play. It's a play inspired by many, many women and their stories and people also who participated in recent protests in Belarus in 2020. Mm. The story covers a defining day in Dasha's life. She's the protagonist of the play. It's a very fast-paced, gripping story of a woman discovering her real strength. And 
we jump in time quite a lot. We visit her childhood. We see snippets of her kind of rebellious youth. But of course, we also see her involvement with anarchists during perestroika in the 90s and late 80s in the Soviet Union. And that is a very personal story in a way, because it certainly represents people that are very, very close to me and women who have that strength. And this idea wasn't very easy to develop because it was originally my project at Central and I was rewriting it afterwards and rewriting it. And up till now, I'm still working on it. So it's shaping. Yeah, the work sort of never really stops. So could you tell us a bit about your writing process? How do you begin? How do you maintain it? How do you keep going? How do you find it? And so on. Thank you. Yes, it's a very nice question, actually. Thank you. I usually start with research, and Mm -hmm. that includes reading, listening, talking to people who might have been involved in the events that I might be representing in my story. Mm -hmm. And in order not to make it a documentary, usually I move away into fantasizing about different angles and what the story might be. And what helps me the most in this process is to make a collage of drawings and postcards and photos Mm -hmm. and any visual material that I can find helps me usually to open imagination and find new perspective. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I start my first draft and usually I have a large roll of paper with sticker notes and drawings in front of me. So when I'm writing, I have a desk and then on that desk, there is always a laptop. And (laughs) But there are a lot of different sort of images and photos and that sort of soft research. Soft research is anything that's not related to words for me. Mm -hmm. For example, the anarchist, I had a huge spider in the corner of my sort of collage and it turned out to be a symbol of the play at Mm. the end. And it's something that was not there intentionally almost, but it was a very potent animal in my life. So I put it there and then it connected. And now it's a very potent symbol in the play too. So it's all interconnected in a way, the subconscious imaginative take on things, plus very conscious, logical scenario where I research something, I feel it's relevant, I feel it needs to be told, and I use it purposefully, Mm. and I talk about it. Yeah, there's so much serendipity in writing, isn't there? Mm, mm, So many mm. happy accidents. Yes. So as an actor, you've recently had this wonderful credit, All the Old Knives on Amazon, starring Chris Pine and Tandy Newton, which is such a fantastic film credit to have. So how was your experience on that set? And how do you see both your acting and writing career developing over the next few years? Thank you. All the Old Knives was an incredible experience. Of course, it's a production with an amazing cast. I got the role during the peak of the lockdown and the filming was in February. And in fact, I had a good amount of time to prepare for the role. Tandiwi and Chris were incredible actors. They were very, very supportive and attentive to me. It was my first professional work on screen where I had to do things very, very quickly and I had to be very ready to do takes and 
there was a lot of demand because there is a particular vocabulary people use on set that people don't use in theater. And there are a lot of mm -hmm. practical things that you don't learn unless you are on set. And Janusz Metz, the director of the film, gave me a lot of freedom to play and explore. And I didn't feel at all limited by any of the technical parts of working in film. So it's a spy noir sort of thriller. And the experience, in fact, was very mysterious and adventurous as the whole film. So, <laughs> um, And I think when you asked me about my career, I think considering the chaos that we live in at the moment, it's very mm. difficult to make any plans. And oh, yeah. so I wouldn't be able to even do that simple task about where will I be in five years time? Yeah. <laughs> it's all very unpredictable, mm. and even more so in our industry. Could you tell us a little bit about what types of projects you're interested in as a writer and also maybe as an actor? I love just any sort of form of expression, I'd say, in terms of I love theater, I love film. It sounds quite banal, but it's true. I go to museums, mainly abroad for some reason, despite the fact that they're free in London. <laughs> I only have a chance to properly walk for hours when I travel. And my favorite museum is in Bertina in Vienna. I always visit it. And it just, I draw inspiration from everything. I do have people whose work, obviously, and support contributed a lot in my career. Stephen Lawton my mentor from Central. I draw a lot of inspiration from his work. I also, not in person, but I had a chance to be introduced to Lucy Preble, who read The Anarchist at a very early stage and shared her impression and feedback on the play that encouraged me tremendously. And I respect her so much as a woman who is so established and worked so hard in theatre in London. I just feel that I have a chance to because there is not a lot of representation of female writers in theatre. And yes, so I drew inspiration from a lot of things and any form and also many, many people. Fantastic. And I was curious if your experience as an actor and also as we were discussing an international actor and viewing how the representation isn't there yet, particularly on stage in London and in, in the UK. Mm. Do you feel that's something that also influences the types of works you want to put on and that you want to create? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel always that international people are not represented in theatre at all. Before I participated in the Bourbon Voices Prize, I believed that I was the only person fighting for this cause. I honestly did. Hmm. And It was really, really scary when I was slowly realizing that I might never live at the time when there will be a real change and there will be actors, strong actors, with maybe weren't bred and raised in England who would go up on the stage and use their accent, the way they look, the way they speak and... The way they move even. The way they move, exactly, and do Shakespeare. And I would have love to watch that. I know theatres in Europe who do that and it's very brave and it's beautiful to watch. But in England, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to witness this transition, this sort of broader look where we can embrace all these people who we do have in London, who come from all over the world and give them a chance to to represent these people because by the end of the day, actors are representing real people. And at the moment, we don't have 
many many plays that do that at all it's always looks like it's the same sort of human being on the stage just mm -hmm. you know there is not a lot of variety but london has a lot of variety mm -hmm. yeah so no that's very true mm. well that kind of leads on pretty well to my next question which is mm -hmm. what do you admire about the uk theater industry yes it's a very good question actually so the good things about theater to me it's just I admire it, honestly, is the technique. <laughs> the technique. Yeah. Actors are agile. They have such precision when they work with texts. Directors have a great skill of elevating the text and bringing their vision. And writers work extremely hard on their plays. And that sort of work ethic and respect for the story to be told very professionally Mm -hmm. makes most productions, even if they don't have maybe fantastic stories at core, still very watchable. And people don't walk out during intermission and they stay because it's all very well shaped and very well told. And I really mm -hmm. admire that. And I really respect that. And I think that makes me a better writer and a better performer myself. The school of acting and the school of writing in England. I, I respect that. Mm -hmm. And is there anything you find it might be able to learn from other places that you've seen and experienced? I mean, it's, of course, each... I think every theatre, in a way, represents kind of the country's culture and identity. Because when you go to Germany, you see these very, very kind of very powerful, strong, direct plays and takes on stories. And in Moscow, it's very dramatic and emotional yeah, <laughs> and raw. Yeah. And I feel in England, it's very self-contained, but it is still very powerful. So I feel that it's all about maybe experiment. It would be great if we had more of that sort of exchange where people could go for residency to Europe. I don't know how it will be possible after Brexit, but still having that sort of flow when we exposed more to different cultures and different styles of theater making, mm -hmm. I think will be very refreshing for all of us. I would have loved to do that and work with people who have different training, for example. Absolutely, yeah. And something we've discussed with some of our previous guests as well, in terms of how that type of collaboration could also create some new, really interesting and exciting forms. Yes. Many of our guests have spoken about feeling the impact of the hostile environment policies, mm. which is often reflected, as we've discussed, in fewer opportunities less support, struggling to be taken seriously due to background accents, all these things we've touched on, but you've already kind of answered this, but is this something you feel reflects your experience as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, you have to work extremely hard, I think, both as a performer, as a writer, to be listened to and to be given an opportunity because people trust in a way, people, they it's interesting because I have this very good friend of mine in Nikki and she's from Singapore and we talk a lot about being other, this otherness mm. and how difficult it is to embrace it in yourself because you feel like it's a point of interest for many people, but also it's how, how do you win that trust? And I think that it's all about education. It's all about putting your work and inviting people and showing them, yes, I am other. I do come from a different planet, but it makes us work better. I will bring mm. a perspective to you 
that you might have never even seen or thought of. I have these set of skills that might be useful to you. I can perform this part. I can do this role in a way that you might have never considered or write something that you never heard. And it's all about, I think, exposing yourself and people allowing you to do that. And these conversations have to be very, I think, honest and transparent in the room mm. because many times we're not given even a chance to be in those rooms because there is a lot of sort of suspicion and, oh, she's not a native speaker. Oh, she's not, she's, mm. you know, she's, and all of these prejudices by the end of the day, they of course limit a lot of talent. And I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about so many people I know mm -hmm. who work extremely hard, but they just have prejudice against them because there are stereotypes about them. Absolutely. At the end of the day, the important thing is clarity. The important thing is for the text to shine through and be full of life. And clarity serves that. But yes, accent really. Why should it be an impediment? You know, for a play that is about a very specific part of the world, I understand. But for something as universal as Shakespeare, there really is no excuse. I agree with you. And I feel like it's also living at the time and living in a, such an international city. Yeah. Not having people, not hearing accents in any medium. It's just shocking. It's not only theater, it's also independent film. Yeah. I watch a lot of European cinema and I hear people coming from all over the world, from different places. And there is a lot Absolutely. of appreciation for that. And here I constantly watch the same group of people doing different stuff. And it's just so odd. Yeah. And it's true that even lots of series and productions that are based in London, well, you'd expect to see an international crowd on it. And you often don't really, if at all. Yes. I was just watching like <laughs> Tinder Swindler. Have you heard oh, of Oh, yes, of course. Anyway, but just like the glorious European accents on that documentary. Mm -hmm. And you just think, oh, God, yeah, no, I don't hear any of this in fictional TV or film. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's, and the cinematographer who worked on it, it's Edgar Dubrovsky. He's, in fact, a very good friend of my dear friend, who's also a cinematographer from Russia. And I think the fact that they even have a very international crew working on that film, it's about the fact that, like, you can see a good show and you know that people were very open-minded and very kind of curious of taking real talent instead of narrowing it down, you know, to anything. Mm. Now, the word migrant really is a blanket term which covers a huge range of vastly different experiences, hugely different situations for every individual. However, this is a question we like to ask all our guests, which is, do you find through your own experience that there is a shared migrant experience or sense of identity or just some kind of bond? Yes, absolutely. There is always some sort of recognition. <laughs> and I have many international friends from all over the world. And as I said before, they have such different perspectives on things, both politically and socially and creatively. Mm. And that's the beauty of being a migrant, of being this other. And their multicultural perspective forms this very, very sort of broad view of the world. And I admire that. And I try to keep these people very close to me in life. And I believe that everyone should travel and explore the world and people's cultures. And we live in London where we have people living here 
and they come from Chile, China, Australia, Siberia, Italy, Finland, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Singapore. It's mm -hmm. incredible. And I feel extremely lucky to be introduced to these people. When I was in Kazakhstan, I have many nationalities, but I knew people coming from many different parts of the world, but not nearly as many as people I met in London. It's a concentration in a way of talent and cultures. And I certainly feel proud to belong to that group of people. Fantastic. And what about home? What does home mean to you? Oh, it's a very, it's a very interesting question because I think home for me, I think maybe for today, it's my current studio apartment where I spent the whole lockdown with my partner, Marco. He's a writer as well and an actor. And we met during our writing course at Central. And he is part of that word home for me. He's an Italian man who moved here in his mid-20s. And we are very, very similar in a way. And to me, home is not just, I think, four walls and the ceiling above my head, but it's people And it also has, in a way, a nostalgic sense to me because I believe that if I went back to Belarus or Kazakhstan, I might not find that home. <laughs> and sometimes you sit down in, even on holidays, sometimes you sit down and there is a, such a sense of home because you're surrounded by a lot of warmth and recognition and encouragement from people next to you. And I just value that a lot in life. And that gives me such a sense of belonging. Mm. So yeah, I think it's people for me. That's beautiful. And has your time studying and living in the UK, do you find it's had an impact on you and well, your sense of identity? Yes, yes, absolutely. I obviously come from a Russian speaking country with a lot of means of expression in a way. And my face always displays my emotions compared to <laughs> <laughs> how well British people hold themselves. English in particular, I would say, because I see a lot of differences amongst all four countries. And mm -hmm. I feel I'm still learning how to get to that level of sort of you know, that's sort of unexpressed and unimpressed, but very articulate. And <laughs> For sure. um, I'm right there with you, <laughs> trying and failing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and sometimes I feel I'm too much even, I'm too expressive. But again, that's mm. the beauty of my culture and embracing the way I was raised, embracing my roots. And it's very important. I think the thing that I... I love absolutely and inherited from living in London for so many years is patience. I became more patient than I was hmm. by far. And people here, they really almost have that sort of image of like being a very sort of wise old parent. And sometimes you have these friends of mine who are English speaking friends and people who live here and were raised here and they talk to me and I express myself and they always patiently listening to me. And I always think, wow, this is so beautiful because they don't interfere, but they listen and they observe. And, and I'm, I think I've learned that too. I haven't mastered it, but I learned how to <laughs> use space to people, but also be patient with things and time. And yeah, that's patience, I think. Yeah. Wonderful. So, well, this is a fun little question we like to ask. What is the most British thing about you and what is the least? Ah, so... Okay, the least is, of course, I'm, 
again, I'm way too expressive. I <laughs> sometimes react before I think, right. which I think British people never do. And I, <laughs> on another hand, I certainly drink tea with milk as mm -hmm. a real yes. English lady. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's something unbeatable because the only other country I know where people have that tradition is Kazakhstan. So I'm not sure whether in, in the US people also drink black tea with milk, but I was raised and always had that. So that's very, very English. And it were British about me. Yeah, I feel very Downton Abbey with my fine <laughs> China and <laughs> black tea. <laughs> yeah. No, Nadia and I both started drinking tea with milk here. Yes. Yeah, we never would have imagined doing it before. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Well, finally, this is our final question. What hopes do you have for the future for yourself, both on a professional and personal level? Oh, it's a very, very good question. Thank you. I hope that in the future I will have opportunities and to explore the themes that I'm exploring now, which are political traumas and stigmas, but also other people's tradition and culture. And I hope that I will also be able to write about women and I will write female lead roles that are still lacking in our industry. And I hope that for people who feel underrepresented and who don't have means for education, who are in doubt of expressing themselves because of political repression or even other people's expectations, that my work eventually in the future will, in a way, encourage them. Because I think having somebody out there who is similar to you, either in background or in the way they sound or in the way they move... Hmm. Is very, very encouraging and encourages you to do your own work. And I just, that's my biggest hope, to be honest, for my career. I see. And what about on a more personal level? On a personal level, I think is to make new friends, find new collaborators. And I think to me, I love people and I'm curious about people. And I love creating work with people and travel with them. And I'm just very, very excited to meet new people and hear their stories and explore yeah, different parts of the world, which unfortunately due to a lot of contribution to education, I haven't had a chance to do. <laughs> so mm. I hope to travel more and more in coming years for sure. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. It was really such a lovely talk to have with you. And again, a massive congratulations on being the inaugural winner and your play really blew us all away. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I really, really appreciate you having me here today. Thank you. My pleasure. To find out more about Karina and her work, check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Zachary Fall, Ben Weaver Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, Follow Woven Voices on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.